Hello, my name is Jacob Miranda, a social psychologist and assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at California State University, East Bay. And I'm Cassie Witt, a social psychologist and assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at Eastern Kentucky University. Together, we are the hosts of Corrupting the Youth, a podcast about the teaching of psychology. If you love psychology, education, or both, then this is the podcast for you. Hello, 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 beautiful people. Welcome back to Corrupting the Youth. We're going to corrupt a couple more kids today. And by kids, I mean early career researchers, of course. Um, Cassie, Catherine, Marie, Witt. Even though your name is not Catherine. It's not Catherine. That's my niece's name. (laughs) Hey there, Cassie. What's shaking, Megan? It's been another hot minute since we've recorded. But, you know, we're getting back into the routine again. We now have a schedule. And so we're going to be popping this up left, right, and center. Hopefully, yeah. No. (laughs) Asterisk, maybe not 100% guarantee, but we're going to try. Yeah, it's like, don't be making empty promises. Um, No, I think we're both sort of at the point where spring semester is starting to to wind down. So we're finding ourselves with a bit more free time. Um, I think it's a very different experience ending uh, the... The, the school year as a faculty member than as a student um, like this was always like the most stressful time I feel like when I was in undergrad and like grad school I was like oh my god I have so many assignments to do and this meeting and that meeting and I guess I feel a little overwhelmed with the amount of grading that I have um, but I'm still just like oh this assignment they've turned that in. Like I only have this many lectures to give. Um, And because I have the same teaching schedule this semester, like the same classes, it's a bit more streamlined than it was in the fall. So beautiful. I'm looking so forward to that because I know my first two courses I'm taking the fall are both social psych. Mm -hmm. Um, But I know that one of the two courses I'm teaching the few next spring will also be social psych. So kind Mm -hmm. of like you said, like, once you have like that, you know, by the time I get to spring the second half of my very first year, I'm like, yes, I've taught this class, this course specifically so many times at this point. Yeah, no, I mean, fall semester of your first year as a faculty member is about survival. You are going to have a bunch (laughs) of new preps, you're like in a new place, like you're trying to figure things out. There's just like so much to learn and adjust to. So a finished class is a good class. <laughs> a finished paper is a good paper. And a yeah. finished class. Is a... I also said, because I feel like most people are like, oh, are you talking about like getting used to the school? And I'm like, no, just getting used to your neighborhood as well. <laughs> like yeah. you're in a new place and like, you're in a new social setting. So just like figuring out your new life routine, yeah. not just like your work routine, but like you're like, but I think that comes with moving is just as always a little bit hectic of like, all right, all right, Cassie. Normally in the beginning, we haven't done this in a hot minute, I think, but like sometimes we do peaches and pits or roses and thorns, right? But today mm-hmm. I have to ask you, can you give me some of your highlights and lowlights of the day? Sure. Um, well, I guess this is a, a nice continuation of this discussion of like moving and finding yourself in a new place because my peach is that I got a new job. <laughs> what? 
Um, and so it's definitely a peach. Yeah, it's definitely a peach because in the fall, I will start an assistant professor position at Eastern Kentucky University. Um, so which wait, is, remind me, where were you at or where you are currently? I'm currently at Western Kentucky <laughs> University. So not confusing at all. You're now at yeah, so EKU. Yeah, now I'm, yeah, I'm going from WKU to EKU. Um, and again, I'm saying it's definitely a peach because that's where I went to undergrad. Um, so I'm getting to, to go back to a, a school and a department that I've got some deep connection with. Um, and it's also a lot closer to like where my family lives and where my partner's family lives. So we're going to be super close to, to loved ones and it's just all around, like very, very exciting. Definitely. I think that's a very important fact to think about, right? It's mm-hmm. like, well, yes, I live in the same state as my family, but like, if you're on the opposite side of that state. <laughs> yes, like I am. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a lot better, of course, you know, like being three some hours, three or so hours away um, compared to like when I was a grad student in Alabama, of course. But, you know, just being under, like being an under an hour to like where, you know, my my parents live and where my partner's parents live and where my brother um, and sister-in-law and niece and everybody, it's just very exciting. So basically what I'm hearing is that I'm no longer a graduate student at the University of Alabama. And you're no longer an assistant <laughs> professor at Eastern Kentucky University. It feels like our intro at this point is outdated <laughs> once again. Yeah, our our intro is basically not true. I mean, I'm still a faculty member here at Western Kentucky um, until the spring semester concludes. Which, so my Pete, my my Pete, your Pete, my, who tells you tell who is Pete? I, I was trying. I mixed the the words up, Peach and Pit together. I would um, never but, do that personally. But yeah. <laughs> I don't think I believe that. Um, my uh, my pit though is is kind of leaving um, my students. You know, I have really enjoyed like getting to know so many of the students at at Western over the past year, especially the students who are working in my research lab. And I have one student in particular who's like worked with me like both in the fall and the spring. Erica, you know, Erica, she's been helping us with some projects and. When I told her that I was like leaving um, at the end of the school year, like we both just like sat in my office crying (laughs) and it was just like this super emotional moment. Um, So, yeah, I really am going to miss miss the wonderful students that I've like had the honor of like getting to know and to teach over the past year. Um, But I am definitely excited to to move um, and, and be closer to, to family and back in, in a department that, you know, I have a lot of history with. Oh, definitely. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. As far as like my highlights, I actually have like three highlights and a one low light, but I feel okay. like these can be almost ammunition where I like to kind of carry in my back pocket for future episodes. Uh-huh. Uh, so I don't know. What do you think would be the best course of action, Cassie? Do I unload now and be like, tut, tut, tut? Or, yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that if you have good things to talk about, you should talk about them. And then you're going to be on the lookout for another peach to talk about. So it can make you like, can prime you to notice those positive things, right? I wish that sometimes we do a visual recording so people can see 
how your eyes widen at some of these words you emphasize. <laughs> it's a bit scary, but you're like, but the peach, Jacob. And just imagine like an owl's eyes widening. And I'm like, uh. I am a very expressive person. Definitely, definitely. Um, all right, then we'll, we'll do the three highlights and let's see if I can keep them all in my head or and they're just going to like drop. Um, and maybe then I'll start with a low light then and then end on the three positives. Yeah. Um, low light is more physical and more present to today. Um, it's kind of been an ongoing process, but for those of you, which I'm sure many of you don't, don't know, and hopefully don't can't hear the list too badly, but I do have braces. Um, and so I have been seeing an orthodontist, trying to straighten out my teeth, have had some teeth removed. Um, and typically for children who have braces, it can take anywhere from like a year and a half to two years. For adults, it can take a little bit longer and teeth can be a bit stubborn from two to three. Um, I'm starting to approach my fourth year with braces. Um, and so I got to meet my orthodontist again. We're, we're buddies at this point. Um, and basically he let me know like compared to a third of like his employees, um, I've been there longer, so I should just start being on the paycheck at this point. Oh, no. And he, uh, he said that I am number one, which always, you know, you think number one's been good at having the most stubborn teeth he has seen in his professional career. And so currently, I, you can't see it, but Cassie, um, but they put special more power bands both underneath the wire, above the wire. They've trimmed my teeth. They've added blood. Like they've done a bunch of stuff. So currently, as I'm smiling, like I said, I'm used to kind of like the mouth pain at this point, but like it's just really sore. And mm. I'm just like my genetics. Gosh darn it. So yeah. that, that would be my low light, right? You you get used to it in a couple of days, but I'm just like, ugh, why won't they move? Yeah, no, point? I mean, I had braces as a young child. Um, so I'm kind of removed from the experience, but I do remember, especially like with the rubber bands, like how much pain there was, like when those became involved. And I'm sure you remember, like, I think first month I got here at UA, I got my braces. Yeah. Right. Like I got them almost immediately. And now it's like, oh, well, (laughs) they're still here. So what's going to happen if you're like not done with your braces before you move? This will be the ongoing conversation I'm having with my orthodontist. I'm like, um, so uh, you're still charging me every month, and uh, it's not done. And you, yeah. Anyways, that's another story. Another time. Hopefully, by the yeah. time I move, that's um, definitely a pit. Like, yeah, that's that's a pit, right? Um, but peaches, peaches, peaches. I think that the first peach I have is our episode that released, and maybe I've already shared this, but I just double checked our last episode actually released about a month ago. Right. So we kind of took a little delay again, but hey, not as long of delay. And um, it was released on March 6th. So I'm assuming we recorded it beforehand. Right. Obviously. Um, but March 6th is a special day to me because that's the day that I successfully defended my dissertation. So I am now Dr. Jacob Miranda. Yeah. As many of my colleagues told me, they will never call me by that name again. So. <laughs> but yeah, it's confirmed my like last little hoop to jump through to get my um job confirmed right because they'll give you an offer is make sure you get that phd and i'm like done check the box so i'm still feeling the high off that um that just feels really good it's a bit accomplishment that's been stressing me out as you Uh should though and then they'll there will be like a second high on like when you walk at graduation that feels very very special too it's almost like the final one you know it's like (laughs) yeah Hopefully the final time to go to medical school. Let's go. <laughs> I have that thought too often. <laughs> um, I would say the second big highlight actually comes 
not necessarily bittersweet, but you know, a, a little a tinge of sadness, mostly happiness. It's uh, Alexa's brought her prospective student, so our advisor. Um, and yeah, basically, one of the guys she's brought in is like a better version of me. Oh. <laughs> he wears Hawaiian shirts. He has the same glasses that I do. Um, he has more hair than I do since I'm balding. I'm like, oh my oh. God, he's the upgrade. But like he's just he's a video gamer. I'm just like Alexa has a type at this point. Like I wonder that should be like a research study. Like, do mentors have a type when they're choosing their graduate students? Fairly. I suspect so. Yeah. Um, I'm just like, wow, you really I'm I'm still here and you found it. But he basically visited for four days. And mm-hmm. I don't know, for me, someone who has just got you know, basically been striving to get into a PhD knows the statistics of how hard it is and then like when you see that they've got an offer and like just how enthusiastic and happy and creative and all the ideas that they have and i don't know it was like a good mental reset from like all the exhaustion of a phd mm-hmm. i feel like graduate students can sometimes be notoriously like negative nancy's or like at the very least we're all kind of just exhausted after a couple of years yeah. So it's like almost like fresh blood, you know, I'm just like, mm-hmm. so yeah, it was just good spending time with him. He seems like a great fit. Um, I won't say his name, but hopefully, you know, if he accepts or chooses to accept, fantastical. So yeah. like that, I don't know. It just made me happy. Like that was for some reason. Like, um, it's so yeah, weird for me, like thinking about Alexa now having students I've never met. Yeah, you're, <laughs> hey, you're the granny. You're the old she. Yeah. You're one of her first. So yeah. <laughs> she got to screw up on us a little bit so she can be a better <laughs> Just like parenting. It's beautiful. Oh, that's so funny. Um, and last but certainly not least, there's always that weird period of you graduate, then there's summer, and then your job that you start, right? Because right. your job, your new job might not pay you if it's an academic job until the next fall that might be in october mm-hmm. um and so it's like almost like this i don't say dead period but it's like well how are you going to finance yourself now yeah. that you've graduated um but basically opportunities arose at one of the organizations you and i both kind of volunteered for at one point in time mm-hmm. um specifically it's called the alabama prison arts and education project or the ap aep yeah and essentially they I was able to reach out to one of the head coordinators and there's a teaching opportunity, a very well-paying teaching opportunity for like summer teaching for social psychology um, for a prisoner population. Wow. Uh, yeah. And it's something I'm just like really excited for. It's this prisoner population is a population I care for. I have family from the system. Yeah. Um, and it's just like, I don't know, serendipity. Like it was just like a very lucky chance opportunity that I get to do teaching. I get to do on a topic that I absolutely love, right? That's what I got a PhD in. And it's just, yeah, it happened at a time where I needed the money. So it's like, everything is looking good. They're still having to process some paperwork, but uh-huh. that's my most recent thing I've got in my inbox. And I'm like, that's awesome. Yay. Yeah. So, like, so with that, will you be teaching remotely or like, will you mm-hmm. yeah. be online? Yep. 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 That's awesome. Yep. There will be piloting synchronous online course and I get to be the first. So. Um, hopefully I get to do a good impression of it and not yeah. scare them away. I guess this will this will force you to prep your social psych course. See? Thinking like yep. me too. 
Thank, okay, you, here's my second pit then. Thank you for exposing us. <laughs> and then I'll stop talking because I think I'm hung up the time. Uh, but my second pit is, it's not necessarily for the university itself because the university has provided me, this university here at UA has provided me with so many teaching opportunities where I've been told like I have more teaching experience than a lot of like full-time teaching instructors, right? Like mm-hmm. I got close to a de- basically 10 courses, not quite. Yeah. Um, I think you did too, right? Like you almost got to sense like- Yeah, I taught um, nine classes, yeah. But there's the irony of, and th- this isn't anyone's fault, it's just how, like, the cookie crumbles, right? But, like, you get classes assigned based off need and, like, what classes need to be taught or her faculty isn't feeling like teaching this type of course. Uh, I'm a social, a social psychology PhD, and I've never taught social psychology. <laughs> I have taught statistics, methods, history, psychology of gender. I've taught so many other things except what I'm getting my PhD in. So uh, normally I'll be like, oh, I have courses prepped. I haven't ready to go. But like, basically, like you're saying, getting to do this for the prison population, it it's forcing me in a good way to start prepping in the summer yeah. for the fall classes because I'm teaching that twice. So anyway, yeah. that's like just been on my mind. So I like these, these things. I'm just yeah. feeling good getting to teach. Well, cool. I'm glad. But yeah, like that's it's such a wonderful organization too. So like I'm I'm glad you're gonna g- get to work with them again. Yeah, and I think it's just hopefully a good opportunity or resource in the future. Mm-hmm. I think that oftentimes people want to do research or like do cool projects with like sensitive populations. Yeah. Um, like students or prisoners or not. But like one of the hardest things is establishing that first connection, yeah. right? And I think at least so far, I think I'm building a good rapport with the organizers there. They seem like very kind people. Mm-hmm. So I don't know in the future of they've talked about doing maybe qualitative project codings or looking at like prisoner populations, teaching evals, essentially, and saying like, what are prisoners getting out of it? So I know that would catch your interest because I know you yeah. talk about teaching evals. But like yeah. to me, that would be so freaking cool. I'd be like, well, yeah, let me throw, that. throw my name out there. Are you, <laughs> it's yeah. like I have some research. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. All right, then. So today's topic. Today's topic. Today's topic. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I know. We're having so much fun now because sometimes talking about the job process uh-huh. can be daunting. And some people might be like, uh, this seems like a lot. But we're basically going to do a two-parter, a part one and a part two. And I think that with both of us recently being on the job market, some of us are first ready, some of us the second, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we Very fresh on our mind is going through the process, preparing application materials, looking at resources, getting interviews, prepping for the interviews. Basically, we've just gone through all of this. Yeah. And I feel like that's a lot to cover in a single episode. So what I proposed to Cassie, and Cassie was like, yeah, sure, is a two-parter in which we kind of covered the first half. Um, basically of you are the applicant how do you prepare what should you be doing in your graduate school or maybe you're a postdoc or maybe you've gotten like a you know you've gotten your PhD but you're a teaching institution but you want to go to something more tenure track or elsewhere which is you know great Um, basically what should be done and then part two is like hey you have a job offer how do you operate the interview what questions will you get how do you go through negotiations yeah um, so I think kind of to begin with, the first thing we should probably talk about is knowing what options are available for you to begin with and identifying that first. Um, and I wanted to talk about that first because I've talked with graduate students and grad- prospective graduate students who have interviewed here, generally at UA, right? 
And I'll ask them like, okay, so like, what do you want to do? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is a pretty common question. It's not the most like, whoa, that's so cr- <laughs> that's so profound. Like, but like, you know, when you no ever like, asked me that, no, they're asking that before. Um, and you know, so obviously many students are still trying to figure it out. Many prospectives are like, hell, many sometimes people within graduate school are like, ah, I still need to figure out if I'm going to R1 or not. But I think that many institutions, because we're raised in an R1 culture, our mentors are working out our own. We are at ones, right? R ones. It almost feels like, well, of course you want to go to an R1 as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe even breaking down what R1 is for people who don't know, but basically you can have, how I understand it is three general categories within academia. So the same in the private sector, but within academia, the first is uh, something called a PUI uh, or um, a primarily undergraduate serving institution or primarily undergraduate institution. So these are institutions that don't have master's programs. They don't have doctorate programs. They serve undergrads. And we could kind of go a little bit deeper into like what uh, what constitutes a PUI. Um, secondly, you have like the M class of institutions, which these are institutions that only provide master levels. And it goes from like M3, M2, M1. And really these classifications, it's the smaller the number. So like M3 would be like the lower rank than M2 and then M1 the highest rank. It's how many master's programs are being offered at that school. How much funding does that school get? Similarly for research heavy institutions, um, ones that are offering specifically doctorate programs. You have your R3s, which might have be a school that or university that offers like one PhD program and all across all its departments. So it doesn't get a lot of money. And R2, which does some research, right? Um, definitely more than R3 and has a moderate amount of PhDs. And then R1 is basically across many different departments. There's a lot of PhD programs out there. Mm-hmm. And so I think that one, it's good to establish what those are because some people will be like R1 and that's the only thing I know. And they're like, well, what about R2? And people are like, I don't know that. Point of clarification, um, do you mean like PhD specifically or just like doctoral degrees? I would say to specify, I believe, so this could catch, um, doctoral degrees. Okay. So PUIs, right? Mm-hmm. What they can constitute of could be something as straightforward as a community college course, right? Um, it could be that, or it could be a full-on four-year bachelor's granting university, which is not just an associate's. And I don't think many people realize that. PUIs tend to focus much more heavily on teaching, obviously, because you're not going to have graduate students, you're not going to have any masters, you're not going to have any doctoral mentees. It's going to be mostly teaching, but there are PUIs that focus on research a little bit. Um, so you have to be very careful with the job application to see what are they specifying, because some PUIs will still ask you to do research. Again, not the most intensive research, not the million dollar grant fund research, but it could be we expect you to expose your undergraduate students to the research process, maybe like expose them to like what it is to run like a small scale study or the methods, Um, which again, if you like a little bit of research and most teaching, a PUI might be for you. Yeah. There's this paper by Kingsmith, uh, 2021. I can like link this in the show notes. Uh, Originally it was written for like biomedical scientists but basically outlines reasons why you would want to go to a PUI, the skill sets that you need, and like strategies to prepare for that process as early as graduate school. And I think that might be a good resource. And basically it goes over like a lot of misconceptions and just like general clarifications about what a PUI can offer 
um, to people, which I think would be pretty cool. Yeah, I think there is this sort of perception that like R1 institutions are going to give you the best kind of experience, right? Just because they have that kind of hierarchical categorization, but I can definitely see the benefits of like going to like an undergrad focused like institution, right? You're probably going to get more individualized attention, I imagine, than you would at most R1 schools. And it definitely impacts the organizational politics of that status Mm -hmm. as well. So basically your department culture. So one thing beyond R2 and R1, right? So R1 would have more doctoral programs. One of the things in R1, the benefits and why universities and deans might push for like a higher ranking is that the school can then get more money from the government, Mm -hmm. right? So Mm -hmm. when there's pressure to open up PhD programs, except it's essentially comes down to money as many things do, right? Um, So for example, uh, I believe one of the leaders in my new administration, um, my new institution essentially just got R2 status, right? Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, I think we opened a couple of programs where we had more graduates than we normally do. We now have R2 status. Yeah. R2 status means our school or my new school for this year is getting a lot more money than it did before. And so like now the agenda is going to departments like, are we going to open up more programs now to ensure that we maintain this? Yeah. Are we going to have our faculty, like are we going to start requiring like more grant applications mm-hmm. um, so that they can bring in more money in? And so like the culture of like an R2 versus an R1, I'm sure everyone knows R1 culture for embedding it. It's publish, 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 grant application, grant application, grant application, which for some of you, might love. You're like, yes, that's exactly what I want to do. But if that's not for you, then I think it's yeah. okay to consider, which almost seems taboo, but consider not an R1. Yeah. There's almost like shame or like, uh, I, based, I don't have an experience in my department, but like on Twitter, it almost feels like there's sometimes like a guilt of like, mm-hmm. I failed if I can't make an R1. And I'm like, well, but if it's not for you, and that's just not your career yeah. choice. Yeah, I and I think like this kind of discussion about like perceptions of like going to like schools with different rankings or like rankings that are in an R1 is also like relevant for like different sorts of like positions you can you can seek like once you finish your PhD, like once you're on the job market, are you going into like an instructor position or you know, where you're just going to be doing teaching or you only have like teaching responsibilities or like, are you going like on this like tenure track line? Um, I think there's definitely like a lot of discourse um, on Twitter and stuff, right? Where people are like, you know, what's the point in like not pursuing a research oriented position, you know? Right. And then this completely leaves it outside the conversation of the private sector and Mm, industry. Because I feel like many PhDs are also not trained on the very marketable and transferable skills that they do gain within their PhD, right? Because mm-hmm. they've been told within this specific context, this is what you're good for, right? Yeah. But then you're like, oh, wait, I know how to communicate science. I know statistics. Maybe I learned SPSS code data visualization. There are data scientist jobs out there in many different companies. Like for me, I looked into it when I was on job market for specific like video game companies right for nintendo for microsoft and they have slightly different entry points but i would say i had a majority of that skill set right um and maybe that's that's good because private industry also pays a lot more than academia you know 
I think that the the way that you have to market yourself for those industry jobs, though, is so different from the way that you have to market yourself for academic jobs. Because I also applied for like a few industry jobs and I feel like I did such a bad job of like making myself seem appealing to like those organizations like you i buy got an epistemology and they're like uh, yeah we don't know and they're like we don't know what that means um you know like of the industry jobs that i applied for i got no interviews but i got plenty of like academic job interviews so definitely i remember you telling me once about like uh i'm not sure if you applied there or not but just the existence of an amazon research position that like <laughs> yeah. paid what was like a quarter of a million dollars or something I, I was like oh my lord yeah it's so much money so much money jeff bezos damn it why do you have to appeal as I, money? Um, I was like do i like agree with amazon on like a philosophical <laughs> level no would i work there to make a quarter <laughs> of a million dollars a year yes <laughs> i think that's good for you to know that about yourself <laughs> Yeah. You know, I'd be like, I can change them. <laughs> I can change. Uh, this, that sounds like a toxic relationship, Cassie. <laughs> get out of it. Get out of it. Don't get in it in the first yeah, place. I didn't. I didn't. They didn't want me. <laughs> <laughs> you wanted that. It's okay. <laughs> in another year, we'll re record our intro once more. I'll be like, Cassie, head researcher <laughs> at Amazon Service. Fully <laughs> finding all our resources in the podcast from now on. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think once you figure out what type of job you want or inclining to, right, and that in itself can take some time, I think it's also then important to figure out what skills you need that you can be developing in your time there, right? So essentially, you can be a teaching-focused job, maybe a mix of teaching and research, research-focused job, or a data scientist job. And I feel like there are a lot of different like resources out there for that. Um, and these resources could just be interpersonal. So like talking with your department chair. Like, um, so for example, we had our previous guest, Dr. Ansley Gilpin, um, and I've hit her up and I basically said like, are there summer teaching opportunities here? Are there classes that you know, like they basically have insider knowledge of like, are there certain faculty where they're like, eh, they may teach it, they may not. They're not sure if anyone would pick it up. You can put your own name out there. Um, I think that's definitely helped me teach some unique courses that I wouldn't have otherwise. And I focus on that because like I'm teaching focused, but like mm-hmm. if you're research focused, there are places such as like, um, I, I'm a social psychologist, Cassie, you know this, uh, SPSP, where they basically have like summer workshops, right? Where you get to apply to it. And it's like almost like summer camp, summer data camp for like two, three, three weeks mm-hmm. where it's like they bring in, they invite a hundred psychologists at a time. You all sleep in like freaking bunk beds, like almost like, yeah, cabin. I don't know. It's, it's, it's generally feels like a summer camp based on my understanding. And you basically get to like collaborate, network and do research and go on these professional development skills with like these amazing early career research. So people just like you. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if research is your main goal, right? Like if that's your primary thing, getting professional skills, networking, I mean, and it's like it has living arrangements and food. Yeah, That's a good spot. But like, I didn't know about it until like Alexa said like, oh, did you know this thing exists? And I, I feel like that's so many things. Like there's so many of these cool things out there. there that it's just are. like you, someone just needs to like tell you about and be like, oh, and I'm sure that has to exist for other subfields as well, right? Can't just be a sub, unless social psych are the cool kids, which, you know, that very well may be true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Definitely not yeah. my side bias. 
There are, um, there are just so many things that are like available online. You know, I'm also someone who like very early figured out that like the R1 life was not for me. You know, I knew that I wanted to go into a more teaching focused position. Um, and so like you were saying, making sure that I was like taking advantage of like opportunities at like the the institution where I was, um, you know, like both of us, I know were like graduate teaching fellows. Like we, you know, learned about those opportunities and like sought them out. Um, we like, we're also like very fortunate to have a graduate program where like a teaching of psychology class was required. Um, and so if that is something that is like available for you, some sort of like teaching class that you can take as part of your graduate program, and you know that you want to go to a teaching focused institution, um, then like taking that class as soon as you possibly can, right? Like learning as much as you you can about teaching early on. Um, I'll also do like a plug in terms of like maybe like a professional development sort of like teaching thing. Um, there are all sorts of organizations, you know, of course, external to um your university or like college or wherever you are. Um, so like one place that I have like worked with a lot of the past year is like the organization Course Hero. Um, like I like got a teaching grant through through them um, last semester, which was really wonderful um, and like made some connections there. And this summer I am like developing and leading a webinar for them on like how to incorporate like social media into classes. Um, and so there are plenty of like teaching webinars and things like that, that are like out there and available. Um, a lot of them are cheap or like free to attend. There are a lot of like free teaching conferences. Um, so if you're like, if you subscribe, I think to, um, like listservs for like teaching organizations, then you're going to hear about a lot of these things. Like, don't just like let those emails go to spam. Um, like (laughs) most of them probably won't be relevant to you. Um, but some of them may be, um, and a lot of them include like opportunities that are like professional development, um, for both teaching and research, I think. So I'm glad they brought up Courser. I thought where you were going to go with it, and I feel like it's also a cool resource, um, is doesn't your current institution have like a, what's like a teaching innovation center? Yeah. Like that might be at your university or in Cass's case, hers at her current university is like public or like right resources are made to the public. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that because I, you mentioned to me kind of, and I genuinely, this isn't just a bit. I was like, can you tell me a little bit more about? Yeah. One of the things that I love about Western is the Center for Innovative Teaching and Learning that they have here. Um, And I think that most institutions, like most universities, have something akin to that, like some kind of center for teaching. Um, But I do think that the one here at WKU was quite spectacular, and I, I will miss miss them um but yeah they provide like all sorts of like you know talks and workshops related to to teaching um they have done like as an example they did some stuff this semester on like faculty burnout and like how to prevent yourself from burning out right they do like workshops on like communicating with like gen z students and like how to connect with them um and then something i'm doing through the the center they call it the inclusive t 
Teaching Academy. So it's like all about like equitable teaching and inclusive teaching, um, like how to work with diverse students. And it's like a semester long thing. Um, But all of that to say, right, because I know our (laughs) our listeners uh, are not faculty members at Western Kentucky University. Um, But like, I'm sure. (laughs) This is just an active recruitment for you. Yeah. So I'm I'm sure that like most universities have to have something similar to to this center. So like seeking out like opportunities through through like what you have available to you at your own organization, like take advantage of those things. Right. Again, like if you're if you're a grad student or you're like an early career faculty member, then it's gonna be likely free for you to do, right? You're just going to have to seek those opportunities out and then actually attend them. And Um, I want to um, touch base on this point and a little bit again, specifically when, because we're talking about, or how I framed it currently is like, here's a skill set for you and your personal growth that you can develop, right? And you're building the skill set. I think we could come back to this point when we start talking about the teaching statement. Because like one aspect of the teaching statement is that a lot of times institutions are going to this is something we're like almost like look for buzzwords or at the very least see are you aware of what's the i don't say words like the current conversation the current hot topics that people are bringing up and if you're taking those workshops if you're staying on top of it if you're saying equitable teaching or flip classrooms or like these things even if you yourself don't necessarily do it yeah but that you're showing that you you are aware of the conversations happening and the pedagogy of your field um, maybe I'm just bearing the hatchet when we get there, but like, it's not just a skill set, but like, this will help provide a language when you start developing your teaching statement in the yeah. application. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful point. Um, and to that point, like another piece of advice is to go to the Chronicle of Higher Education website and subscribe to their daily newsletter because they're going to send out some article every single day about current issues in higher education. And then when that hits your email inbox, right? As you're sipping your coffee in the morning, you you don't have to read for depth necessarily, but at least like skim through that. Like that's something that I try to do. So I get, this is my morning routine, right? When I open up my email inbox, I'm subscribed to the poem of the day, right? Through the like American like poetry society. So I read the poem of the day. I'm subscribed to like the Merriam-Webster word of the day. So I read the word of the day and then I skim through the chronicles like article that they send out. And that's like my daily morning routine. And then I feel like I'm kind of up to date, you know, with like some of the big things that are happening at universities. Oh, geez. You're so much more cultured than I am. (laughs) It's not like I'm reading the times or anything. It's like I do a face peel as I drink my Camille (laughs) tea and just some American psychotype stuff, Cassie. (laughs) It's it's just have a business card ready bone. (laughs) Just feel like. uh, (sighs) Um, But yes, basically knowing your resources and building that skill set. And we kind of talked about it and never underestimate just YouTube as well. And just the value of YouTube, right? It's not just an entertainment platform, which obviously I still use a quail for entertainment, but the sheer amount of like, content that's produced and produced by department chairs, by applicants of advice, of just teaching and pedagogical philosophy, of data, data set. There's 15 hour YouTube videos where it's like a full on. Um, we haven't talked about like the skill sets necessarily for um, a data scientist, but like mm-hmm. things typically that aren't covered in a PhD program that you're like, oh, I wasn't, it's on these many of these qualifications from the private industry. 
you can pick up that skill set for free on YouTube of how to work with things such as Tableau, which is like a very, very popular in the private industry data visualization tool that comes up in a lot of job descriptions. SQL, SQL, very, very popular data management software, right? That's used a lot in the private industry, but maybe less in academia. You don't have to be like, well, I'm an academic, I was never taught this, so I guess I just can't apply for private. There, You can, right? And if you're already able to successfully complete a PhD, you can teach yourself a basic data management software. I would like to think, right? At least you have the capacity to teach yourself. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think I think I feel like I'm rambling a lot in this episode, but this might be a lengthier episode. That's why we're doing two parts. Yeah, yeah. This makes me think um, of when I was on the job market, like my last year of grad school, and I was like thinking about applying to some industry jobs, and I didn't apply to very many because I was like, I I don't know that I have those particular skills. Um, I mean, I also had like some pretty severe imposter syndrome when it came to like applying for like the academic jobs too. And I remember being in therapy and talking about this with my therapist and she like looked at me and she was like, Cassie, like you've gotten this far in your education. Like you almost have your PhD. She's like, don't doubt yourself, but also like, don't doubt like the power of like on the job training. She's like, no job when you first start, are they going to expect you to be like absolutely perfect when you begin, right? There's always this recognition that like you're new at this, like you're going to get started and someone's probably going to provide you with some training and some advice. And I was like, whoa, you're so right, Terry. <laughs> and no, I mean, it's also very true, right? So like if you're playing for a statistics data scientist job, right? And you're like, I'm not the biggest statistician. I don't feel like that's my biggest strength. Yeah. Know that in the private industry, you're not going to be more likely than not the lone statistician. You're probably going to be working in a group of like 15 to 20 other statisticians yeah. who are also have a lot more experience and have on the job training to be like, it's okay. Do you know your basics? We can build you up from there. Yep. Um, and I'm not sure what your perception of this is, but I also feel like what kind of goes underestimated is that because we surround ourselves with so many academics, and a lot of academics all have PhDs. No one really calls each other doctor or anything, this, that, or the other. That if you basically talk to anyone outside of academia and you say, oh, yeah, I have a PhD here, what I think our peers and ourselves are like, oh, yeah, but like so does everyone else. It's like that in of itself is a very impressive feat that demonstrates a lot. Like that in of itself has power. And so for the private industry, where they typically get undergraduates, maybe master's level things, to be like, oh, we're going to hire Dr. Witt into this, you're a more desirable candidate than you think you are, yeah. right? Because you, you yourself are probably like dismissing your own achievements of getting that degree. Mm -hmm. But I think you bring up an interesting point of like applying. So my next question for you, Cassie, is how do you find the jobs? Where do you find the jobs? So I can mostly speak to like where to look for academic jobs. Um, so I had really when I was on the job market, five big websites or I guess methods. One of them was like using profess professional organizations. So I know like mm. Jacob mentioned SPSP earlier um, because we're both social psychologists. So SPSP is the Society for Personality and Social Psychology. Thank um, you for, yeah, I need to get to the better habit of saying what acronyms <laughs> are. But yes. yeah. 
course. So SPSP has like a career center. Like they have a whole like web page dedicated to like jobs and like social and personality psych. So that was like one place that I would would look for jobs. Um, you can also subscribe to an email from their career center to like get updates when like new jobs are like, you know, posted and stuff like that. In those uh, emails, because sometimes they're like, it feels very spammy because anyone can like email the whole group, right? And they'll be like, right. sometimes it's cool if you like they have a research question or maybe they're mm-hmm. looking for a collaborator or they're asking you, hey, mm-hmm. can you complete my study? But also another part of that is people will be like, hey, my institution. So not yeah. necessarily on the career job board, but mm-hmm. through the email listserv of that. That's just be like, thing. here's a link to my institution, the job we're hiring here, here, here. Yeah. And like some of the jobs they will post are industry jobs too um so whatever field that you are in or like subfield right like maybe you're in forensic psych or whatever find like the big organization because i i would be willing to bet money that they have something similar to what spsp has um so those kinds of like professional organizations can be good for looking for jobs um the other place that i looked for jobs um a lot was through the chronicle for higher education so they also will post jobs um and a very similar website is higheredjobs.com so that's also a place to like search for jobs and both of those websites have like features where you can like search by country or state um like type of job like if you you want like like full-time like tenure track um all those sorts of different like filter options and so I found like those particularly helpful because well I knew I didn't want to work at an R1 but I also knew that I wanted to get a job like kind of close to family so like being able to search by state um was a really helpful feature for me and we'll um, link some of these in the show notes. So we'll absolutely. also be saying it now, but like we will link directly to like yeah. straight to the filter search. So you can be yeah. like, oh, this is just us. Yeah. Um, and then the other big one was the psych jobs wiki, which can be kind of overwhelming sometimes because like since it is a wiki, basically anybody can update it. So like jobs would be posted there and they're organized by discipline. Um, but then it's also like, of course, one of those websites where people are like, oh, I got a letter or, or like a request for my letters of recommendation. Like they can update it with that or like on-campus interview invites like extended. Um, and it's really hard sometimes to like not religiously like check that, um, and like socially compare, right? Cause it's like, what if you find a job and you really, really liked it. And then you like go check the, the psych jobs wiki and like they've extended, you know, Zoom invitations or like on-campus invites. And it's like, oh, damn, <laughs> I didn't get that. Um, so I, I would be careful with how much you check that one. Um, and I don't think that there's a whole lot of overlap, right? Like jobs that are posted on the Psych Jobs Wiki that you're not going to find on like the Chronicle or like higher ed jobs or something like that. You do sometimes find gems though. We are like, I haven't seen this anywhere else. For some yeah. reason, it's on the wiki, but, but for some it's, reason it's, on not on the, it's not on higher ed, yeah. <laughs> which you would think is the common yeah. database. And if, and if there's like a school where you're like, I really want to work there, um, then be sure to like go to that school's like jobs webpage to look for openings, right? On the off chance that it isn't posted on like the Chronicle or something like that. 
Um, and then great war. Yeah. Yeah. And then one final piece of advice is like, if you're active on like academic Twitter and stuff like that, sometimes like you'll see like people posting about their departments having an opening. Um, so like, just kind of like being mindful of that too. Um, and similar to like what Jacob was saying about how like a lot of organizations have those email list serves, like, Sometimes it's good to like pay attention to some of those messages, even though like they can look like spam sometimes because a lot of the times like faculty members will themselves like post like, yeah, my department is hiring and you can hear about it that way. Definitely. I feel like touching upon things that you said, specifically like the Chronicle and just higher ed, generally speaking, uh, but also on websites because you talk about like private industry jobs, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, academic jobs are also posted along with private industry jobs on places like monster.com, Indeed. LinkedIn. And the things about those resources along with the higher edge of things is you can actually sign up for email notifications with where you basically say, can you send me any new postings from the past week? But they must have these terms within the job posting. So if you're a social psychologist, you can tell it that be like, give me the list only if this new job is posted past week. And it says social psychology or social psychologist. Or for me, I also was really dead set on trying to get a tenure track position and say, so tenure, social psychology, and these kind of like buzzwords, all these resources from LinkedIn to the other way that, and like you, uh, Cassie said, like a lot of do have like overlapping searches, which one is a good thing because you know the institution's trying to search, but mm-hmm. they also have those unique gems, right? They always have maybe one or two schools that maybe put on one database, but not on the other. True. And when you're on the job hunt and everyone's, a, I don't say everyone's a competitor, but like it can be a bit vicious sometimes or or i shouldn't say vicious it's just competitive it's hard to get a job um i think at least that helped me stay on track of what i needed to do and like keep afloat because sometimes it's hard to be like have did i check this last week is this a new thing is this not a new thing some postings are like old but you don't realize that they're old and it's like it's a lot Yeah. And another piece of advice, which I think both of us did was like, I kept a spreadsheet. So like I would find a job, I would like read through the ad and then I would be like, okay, this sounds like something that I want to apply for. So I would put, put it in my spreadsheet, like the school, like what application parts were like required, like cover letter and such, um, or like when's the deadline to apply, like all of this information to kind of keep track of it because you're going to be, there's just so much out there. Um, Excel sheets, deadlines, some are going to ask for a couple of applications and we're going to ask for a full set of four. Some are going to have different page requirements. And so basically having that one resource, right? Some job descriptions will tell you when they'll review it by, and some will say this is rolling on going basis. Mm -hmm. And obviously when the job where you're trying to apply as much as you can, um, and once you get like 20 jobs deep, you're like, you want to make sure, because we could go into time management a bit later, but like Mm -hmm. a single application, even if you have like the template for most of your um, attachments ready, can still take like, at least for me, like the faster I was on, it was like maybe a 30 to 45 minutes. And that was when I had like all my materials prepared beforehand because it just takes time and it can be very repetitive. They can be very repetitive and, but they can also be like hyper-specific, right? So it's good to have like a, a base 
I, I feel like we like are like a master constantly. template. Yeah. Yeah. Like a master template for like your research statement, teaching statement, diversity statement and stuff. But like sometimes schools will be like specifically like talk about how like it's related to like the mission of the university or like these like specific initiatives that we are doing. Um, and it's also like really good practice, of course, to like do your research on the department itself. So like look at like what other people are like researching, you know, like I was always very intentional about like doing that and like in my research statement being like oh like my research might fit, fit nicely with like this person's like we could easily collaborate um right there like overlapping interests here because I think like one huge piece of advice is that you know hiring like search committees the hiring committees they like to see that you have like really spent the time to like learn about them right and be careful of, like the biggest Thing, or the thing I got most anxious about, and maybe it just feels like with applications generally when you do bulk applications for either undergraduate, graduate school, or the job application. But like, obviously, the common advice is like personalize the statement to them, right? Right. And like, when you have that master template and it has like asterisk insert university name, or like you're copying and pasting because like one application from like University A is so close to University B, so you might as well use University A, but you forget to change University A's name. I don't think I made that mistake, but like that was like a constant ongoing fear of me, like quadruple checking, because I think that could be a kiss of death to be like, I want to apply to the University of North Dakota and you're applying to University of California, you know, I made that having the wrong reference of like who you're interested in as future collaborators. It's like I'm interested in Catherine Smith. Cassie Wood is not going to be very pleased (laughs) being like, who the who is this? I made that mistake on one application. It happened once. It happened once. And you caught it. And you're like. (laughs) Did not get that from them. (laughs) So good. I mean, again, most people are like, well, that's common sense. But sometimes it's still good to hear it. Because it's like, when you're in it, right? Like, it's one thing to be like, here's how you prepare for it. But like, when you're in it, it's exhausting. And it can feel overwhelming. And it can be like, this is application number 22. Yeah, it's a lot of documents to manage. uh, I mean, so how many how many jobs did you apply for? Overall, I think it was close to twenty five. Yeah, I think mine was around thirty. Like industry. Yeah, yours was a little bit. Yeah. yeah. So definitely, 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 definitely. Um, so, what I wanted to bring in next, um, as we were talking about our points, is that what kind of goes into the application? And typically, you can imagine four general things, although some universities will also have unique questions that only they ask or through their job application portal, they're like, please write an essay within our job portal above and beyond these common attachments. But the four common attachments are one, a cover letter. So who are you? Why are you applying to the school? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Some schools may ask for a, a research statement. So what do you study? Why do you study it? Who cares? What have you gotten published, right? And how does that relate? Like, what will you do? How, what research will you do here? How will you do that research here? So research statement, there is the teaching statement. Um, Some universities will only require this. Some universities will require both research and teaching. But basically, what is your teaching philosophy? Going back to like what Cassie mentioned, like all those workshops, showing some basic proficiency that at least you know common talking points or that you've considered critically 
what skills you're trying to build in students, how you're going to go about those skills, stories of successes, failures, and how you learn from that. And the last but certainly not least, and I think this is kind of ubiquitous across universities nowadays, is the diversity statement, which is you can mention a little bit of, you can and probably should mention a little bit of diversity in your cover letter, a little bit about diversity in your teaching statement, a little bit about diversity in your research statement, right? Unless you're, you did what I ended up doing and applying for a social psych position with a specialty in diversity, then obviously you want to app up the diversity score. But really, the diversity statement is the longer format where you're really saying, here is really how teaching is expanded upon and research and service all expanded upon of equity, of inclusion, of social justice. Um, and that generally is a push we were seeing across universities. I'm not sure if you would agree with that, but I feel like there, yeah. there might be a lot of critiques of it. And I'm not sure this episode would be the right thing to like, what are the benefits to people even look at diverse statements, how much merit to people in diverse statements. But I think more so and more so it's being heavier, more, it weighted more heavily than it has and i think that trend will continue and so putting putting a thoughtful response rather than a generic i suppose right Mm -hmm. i think diversity good i work with one student of color right i think maybe that's common one like right i work with one student of color so i do diversity in my research I feel like that's becoming less acceptable or like that's just not good enough anymore. If that makes sense. Like you, I'm not sure. Maybe I'm rambling. Maybe this would be cut off. But what, no, what would you, think, how would you describe the diversity statement? No, I think you're making a really good point. Um, I mean, I think that probably like what most search committees are like wanting to see is that you have like really reflected on these issues. Right. So like you sort of like know how you really truly are like, contributing to like DEI um but also like where there's like room for for growth or like improvement um yeah I, I mean I think the advice that you you obviously like don't want it to be like super generic um and I also just think like the exercise or at least for me like the exercise of like writing my diversity statement was just like personally like very valuable because it like forced me to kind of like sit down and like think about the things that I was doing and, you know, I don't know, the way that I thought about these issues, um, right? And I was, like, forced into a situation where I kind of, like, had to articulate, like, my sort of, like, opinions and my positions on things, which I found just, like, personally helpful and also, like, good interview prep, you know? So, like, when you are, like, asked those sorts of questions, um, you know, you've, like, put in the time already to to really like reflect on them i will add one more thing to what you're saying cassie um because i've seen it in your diverse statement and something that i saw on my own but with that that reflection like all this shouldn't ideally and i think this is what kind of everyone hopes right and we can't like force you to do it but like this is an opportunity not just like a chore to do right and i think you talking about the opportunity reflection actually is a good one because i think one thing that you reflected on one thing i had to reflect on is still us being open scientists meta scientists us caring about diversity right and then we're talking at the intersections of diversity and research a lot of us you and me when i say a lot of us i mean literally mean us still worked with like ua's sample of 18 year old white female 
middle income to high income students, right? And so like some people will be like, oh, you're basically reflecting on your own weaknesses on DEI, right? Or basically areas of improvement, or at least acknowledging like this area isn't that great. I'm aware it's not that great. And it's something that at least I aspire Mm-hmm. to improve right like you don't also don't want to overly but it be like i'll never work with a human subject pool again right because right. that's not realistic but at least owning the limitations of the work that we do i think reflects kindly upon us and i think it's looked upon faithfully to be like yeah. oh this person because more likely than not the people who are reading your statements are also using human subject pools right, right? Yeah. and they're like yeah. and i'm sure they have an inkling of that too so like when you're like you know, you you we all know this kind of weakness. We shouldn't brush it under the rug, but mm-hmm. we're not going to like demonize anybody either. Right. I think that's kind of a sweet spot of like you're being thoughtful. Yeah. Um, with regards to the kind of like that covered letter personal statement, it's kind of like a general overview of what the three other statements are, right? Like it's like nice, it's short page, page and a half, maybe. And saying, here's a little bit about research, here's a little bit about my teaching, here's a little bit maybe about the service that you do, um, and hints of diversity throughout there, right? Um, that's important because even if you don't have, if you're applying to a teaching university and they're not asking for like a research statement, it's still good to let them know in your cover letter, like, but here are still my interests, even if it's like very briefly. So it's still like an opportunity to share all things, even if not all attachments will be required. I think that when it comes to the teaching statement. One thing that I liked, and obviously teaching podcasts, we probably have a little bit more to say. Um, commonly, they'll ask for like, sometimes they won't provide a requirement or a page limit for these things. Um, and I actually see that as a good thing. So generally speaking, I think a good rule of thumb, and you can feel free to disagree, guys, but I think three pages max, always for the teaching statement itself. But if they don't provide a page limit, I use that as an opportunity to instead of just submit the teaching statement alone to essentially submit a teaching dossier. Yes. Right? Because it's like they didn't say I couldn't do it. And so for people who are like, what's a teaching dossier? It's basically a longer format. Sometimes it can be 15, sometimes 20, but it really is up to you. Right. Mm-hmm. But it has a table of contents. It has your teaching statement in it, embedded within it. But it also has things like maybe you had a faculty come in, a mentor into one of your lecture halls. And again, I didn't know about this until you told me about this existence of this, or Anna Lex told me about this. But having like an observer and having, what is it, like a teaching observation, essentially, where you bring in a faculty member, they observe you for one lecture, and they themselves write two to three pages on your teaching style, how you interact with students, and basically they're evaluating you. And you can probably, you post that in your dossier as like a testament. Mm-hmm. So I had uh, a documented letter from Alexis saying, here's exactly what he did in this lecture. Here's what I liked. And it's testament to, I think he might, he would be a good teacher. Mm-hmm. I did that for some of my students where I actually went to some students where I was like, Hey, you know, you really interacted in my class. It's been a while, right? You're not grading them anymore. So you shouldn't go like to go to the students like you're currently grading. Cause it yeah. might be like, uh, Oh crap. I have to say nice things about them, but you can be very honest with them. Like, Hey, would you write, do you mind writing me like an objective how you felt with uh, your experiences when you took the class with me and so you basically are letting your in the future institutional page you're applying to of here's what my mentor thinks of me here's what a third party thinks about me here's what my students think about me and finally what can go into a dossier is your teaching valuations themselves right at the end of the semester you're going to get ratings 
let them know what your course ratings are. If it, there's a free response, you can choose two or three testimonials or bullet points from your ratings and put that within the dossier. And why I like it is you're giving them more information that they're asking for. If they will only look at the teaching statement anyways, they don't have to look at the rest. But if they see that you're going above and beyond and the people are curious, right? I wonder what students say about Cassie. I wonder what this observer said about Cassie. I think that can only help you. And I should you go above and beyond. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, yeah, the teaching dossier was something that I constructed when I was on the job market for the first time. Um, and I was always, if they asked for a teaching statement, no like page limit, I was like, I'm just submitting the full dossier or like oftentimes like what you will encounter is like they will ask for a teaching statement and then they will ask for evidence of teaching effectiveness. And so as like my document to submit for like teaching effectiveness, I would just submit that dossier. Um, so it really sort of like was like multi-purpose, you know, like it was something outside of, or in addition to supplemental to like the teaching statement that I had. Um, and like Jacob was saying, like all of the different components of it, right? Like these observation letters um, or like student letters of support, right? Like that is evidence that you are an effective teacher, um, uh, which I think can only, only serve to help you. Um, what's, what I found the most frustrating with a lot of these statements though, um, or at least like the the applications was sort of like the variability and like what different committees and schools were looking for. So like a lot of them, of course, are just like, okay, here, like provide us with like these, you know, three or four basic things, right? Cover letter, research statement, teaching statement, maybe a diversity statement too, um, with like very little instruction. But then sometimes you would run into them where it was like in half a page, provide us with your research statement or like in half a page, like provide us with like your teaching and research statement, like a combination. So you also have to be prepared to like have like these or create these like condensed versions of the statements or sort of like combined versions of the statements and don't underestimate how long it can take to do that. Uh, for me, like shortening my research statement and stuff probably took me longer than like writing the original one. And that's advice you gave me during your first rodeo and you're like, Jake, when you're in your application, have like your fully embodied with examples, with anecdotes, that three page max, really well thought out. And then you also told me to have a one page version. Yep. And you are right. Some institutions are like, <laughs> I want your teaching statement and one page. Yeah. Well, you're like, but, but, but look how flesh thought. And so it can seem a cut and dry, but like, that's what they're requesting, right? And as yeah. long as you're highlighting the major points, I don't, uh, for at least my teaching statement, how I did, it was like, here's my teaching philosophy. Here's why I care about teaching. Here are some um, recent concepts like flipped classrooms, ungrading, mm -hmm. right? Philosophy. So like, obviously you mentioned those types of things. Um, but after I presented a topic or presented an argument why I think it's important, I would have, I think I included like two, anecdotes each anecdote a half a page of like a real world experience experiential learning was very important to me like hands-on activities and I would actually walk the reader through of here's the concept I was trying to teach them it's a very difficult concept right classical conditioning for all you psychologists out there can be very confusing here maybe if we work with animals I brought animals in here was the thing here was where it went well Here's what I also learned from it that didn't go so well, right? And so in half a page, you're using this anecdote. For the one-page summary, I could still say 
experiential learning is very important to me. Mm-hmm. But guess what? You don't have the anecdotes anymore. And it works out fine. It's just you, you have to really think like, is this absolutely necessary? Yeah. And sometimes bare bones writing, concise writing, I think we all know can sometimes be more difficult when we want to like vomit words. And it's like, yes. no, you have a single page. You have like 250 word limit. That's it. And yeah, sometimes some of them will tell you by page, some will tell you by word limit. It's like, uh, yeah. Joy. Mm-hmm. I think one of them was like a thousand or no, one of them I got was like a character limit. And I'm like, I have to go to Google. I have to like, you know, the websites that count characters for you. And I'm like, yeah, all right, how much is this? That was annoying. And I'm like, uh, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, so we kind of talked about those three statements. Um, I would argue that you should also be strategic of where you apply. So one, I, and Cassie, feel free to disagree with this philosophy in applications. Sometimes I hear advice about like the shotgun approach. Apply everywhere. Apply everywhere, apply everywhere, apply everywhere. Um, and for me, that wasn't, to me, that just doesn't seem like a healthy approach just because of how exhausting it is to apply. And so one, looking for jobs that you are qualified for, I think is good. That being said, I think this can almost sound like opposite of what I said. You should also be open-minded to job titles and job descriptions that aren't using the same words that you're used to. So like social psychology, but the job I got was like, we're looking for a diversity psychologist. Mm -hmm. But then when I read the description, it's like, we're looking really for a social psychologist who can handle DEI new innovative ways. And I'm like, that causes reflection. I'm like, okay, well, I do a lot of big team science. I collaborate globally. I work with like a lot of people from other countries Mm -hmm. and I do diversity, at least at the research level, right? If I were just to only stick with social psychology only, the job I currently have, my dream job, essentially, I would have missed. Same thing for the private industry. Even though I'm saying data scientist jobs, people don't think about HR, where if you read some of these HR director positions, it really is just running data or keeping track of like performance evaluations and job. So, you know, uh, manager evaluations are just like DV outcomes and mm-hmm. where they correlate to, what they not. And so it can sometimes be HR. It can sometimes be motivation coach for the private industry. Sometimes it is just called data scientists, but then companies like to use buzzwords, right? So like Microsoft might be like data innovator and like you read it and it's like, person who runs correlations and i'm like oh well i guess that's a data innovator um right so be, mm-hmm. just be very mindful that you're reading the job description and seeing if it applies beyond the title but i don't think applying to all psych job positions no matter if it's like even faintly because that basically committees won't appreciate that I agree. And a lot of like job ads, you know, they'll be very specific about the kind of psychologist that they want, like cognitive or developmental or social or clinical or whatever. But sometimes like even if it is like a social psychology position, they'll say, yeah, specifically, we want someone who like studies this specific thing, right? Like they're trying to fill a very specific gap um, in their like current faculty. And so it probably isn't going to be, it's not probably not going to serve you um, to like spend the time like applying to that place if you're not really what they are are looking for. And this kind of goes into it, but you mentioned like on the Chronicle and a lot of these job searching websites, like there's filters that you can put. Um, and so when I'm saying being intentional about where you apply and be serious where you apply, serious that if they did offer you, would you actually consider accepting an offer there? 
And what I mean by that is that there's a lot of factors that go into a school beyond R1, R2 status as well, right? So a lot of schools might be religious schools. Um, And so I've heard of stories and I've looked into religious schools where I had to reflect, could I apply here? Um, And some schools I thought after reading through it, maybe they was like a Buddhist principal school and whatnot. And like how they teach, I look into it. I'm like, I can see myself teaching here. Other schools have maybe more, and this isn't against any religion, but I'm thinking of like certain Christian schools I apply to, will say, by accepting this job, you have to live by the principles of Jesus Christ. Please read our Christian values mission statement and know that if the job is accepted, you must basically make an oath that you'll uphold the statement, right? And I'm like, okay, what's the statement? Uh, and then you go into like the Christian mission values. Again, not all Christian mission values, but there's one school I'm thinking of in particular mm-hmm. uh, whose name shall not be said, right? Mm-hmm. And I was like, all right, this is a beautiful place. This is a location I like. And like one of the tenants you as an instructor, as a professor at that school must pledge an oath to is like the abolishment of like LGBT and homosexuality in the student and being reporting students for sexual deviancy. Yeah. Right? Beautiful location. I could even see myself working at Christian school, but the idea of you must now, part of the job description is to pledge that oath. I was like, I can't. Like, that's just, yes, you're social. Yes, professionally yeah. would be a great fit, but like, there, there's that conflict, you know? And yeah, sometimes I, it's not always clear that it is a religious institution until like you dig a deep, bit deeper and be like, oh, wait a minute. Right. Yeah. So like that was for the Buddhist school for me, right? Like I looked into it and then like when I looked more into the school, it's like, yes, we practice it. I'm like, it wasn't a deal breaker. It was like, oh, it's something I really need to think about. Yeah. No, I'm so glad that you brought that up. Um, I mean, like I, I know when I was on the job market, like the first time, like as a a queer person like one of my like factors was I would google the school and something along the lines of like lgbtq plus like statement and if like the school had like never issued like some sort of statement like public statement in support of like lgbtq plus populations I didn't submit an application there that's good and that's you standing by your principles of like yeah. what because at the end of the day if if this is a tenure job that you're looking for, or again, it doesn't even have to be tenured. That's another thing. Because some jobs will like be not officially tenured, but will still promise raises and still try to like acquiesce mm-hmm. all that. But like, yeah, I don't know. Just if this is, you've worked so hard to get to where you are to apply to this, you know, dream position that you, th- you know, you really have worked for to just then not really think deeply, right? It, it, it feels weird to tell people to settle for a job, for a job that they've went to additional 10 years after high school for yeah. to get, you know, because the whole point of it was to not settle for a job that was just, eh, it was to get the job that you really want. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's idealistic. I mean, I don't know, but like that, at least my person, how I walk, it's just like, I'm not applying to postdocs. I'm not applying to this, not the other. I want a 10 year track. I want to end these states. Yeah. Um, and maybe I was overly picky and I just got lucky. That's also a very real possibility. But like, there's certain things that were very strong to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's certain places that I applied to where I thought about it afterwards. And I'm like, even if they offered me it, I, I, like, I spent time preparing for it. But I was like, I spent an hour on this application. And I'm not sure I would even want to go there. You know, and, and that feels like yeah, a very weird thing mean. to say. I'm like, did I invest my time wisely? And I'm going to be honest, sometimes I didn't. And I'm like, uh, and if I didn't hear back from them, I'm like, 
it was like nothing. I was like, okay, it was even it was more of a relief not to hear back from them because if they did, I'd be like, uh, actually, because you don't ever want to like turn down an interview, but it's like, uh, actually, I don't care. It's it's just I don't know. I'm not sure if that makes any central tour, but like, no, I think it does. But yeah, also think about location. So uh, Cassie family was very important mm-hmm. to you. For some people, maybe family's not the closest thing or they care about that. For some people, it's like some families are just like very like live and let live and they're like come visit when you can, right? Also yeah. really cool. And so you might be like, I want to live by the beach or the mm-hmm. weather, like these things that you don't really think about, but like weather, beach, forests, is it by a city? Is it rural? How big is the campus? How small? The classrooms of it? Yep. Basically reflection on what are deal breakers for you, as well as pay. Pay is a very touchy subject always because there's some universities who will straight up be upfront. We are paying this much. And this is, I think, a rare side, but like we were paying XK amount of money and we cannot pay any higher. Yeah. I appreciate those schools so much more instead of, of pay to be discussed later, which is like 99% of it. Because at the very least, you know, we we're applying to some place that they're like, hey, we are not the richest school. Mm-hmm. Here's what we can offer you. And I've read job scripts like if you're applying, you're just please not like that. This is what the salary is. This is mm-hmm. a non-negotiable, dot, dot, dot. But we would be willing to negotiate on other benefits. Right. And so thinking about what benefits of is family leave, is the insurance, it's like all the, for those of you who are young, like all this adulting stuff, right? There's like as a class teaching reduction load, like what is important to you is moving expenses. You can contact these committees early and be like, generally speaking, what are the benefits people get from this, right? These professional benefits. Um, are you going to get startup funds or not? These are just things that you should ask because if research is important to you and they're like, yeah, we'll only offer you 1K, who, who, I guess you could do research on that if you're like, yeah, you know, I don't know. These are just things that all went through my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think a deal breaker for me is I went to, and we could talk about this in the interview, but like I interviewed all the places I went to, I loved, I loved the people there. But like, sometimes it really came down to like just the location yeah. of one was in the San Francisco barrier, which is very expensive and like that's downside of it. But it's by my family, it's in a lovely neighborhood. And some places I went to, all faculty were great. The students I met, highly engaged and to love the community. And that was kind of, no, I, it was it was in a place that was very salt, like away from everything else. Not just like rural, but like you know, like there wasn't much of a city, or there wasn't much of it was anything. remote. <laughs> it was remote, right? Yeah. And no offense to any place, but like some places were more remote than others. And I just sit down and I'm like, professionally, I would be fulfilled here. Personally, my recreational life. Can I start a family here? Mm-hmm. Are there resources here for that? Am I willing to wait 30 years? Because, you know, like in those more remote areas, typically what people say is like 20, 30 years, you know, we'll build more malls and like the neighborhood will grow. And mm-hmm. I'm like, do I wait till I'm 60 to have a decent neighborhood? And yeah. that was the deal breaker for me. It's like, yeah. I love you all here. You are very funny. You're some of the funniest people I ever met. I would love working with you. We still can. We can still collaborate. Um, and more often than not, they understand Right, like I never got like guilt tripped in anything. They're just like, oh yeah, no, we totally get it. Mm-hmm. Right, we made the decision to come here. That's fine, and yeah, we liked you. You like us. It doesn't have to be like ending on negative, negatives all the yeah. time. I mean, I agree. Like, 
I, that was like my experience, like turning people down too, right? Where it's like really, really hard, but like they get it. Um, and, you know, like me, like with my partner, of course, like her, like yeah. that's part of my decision-making process as well, right? So that's another sort of like complicated layer there. Like if you have, you know, a partner, like kids or or whatever, right? Like that's a decision that's going to affect everybody, um, you know, and like the, the place that I turned down the school that I turned down, you know, they were like, you know, we know, like, it's, it's a hard decision, especially like when it's a decision that like affects other people's lives. Yeah. When it's not just your decision, but it's like this yeah. is a co-decision almost. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think that probably how we should end this off, right. For part one, at least is talking about when to start thinking about these things and when to start actively working on them. And I think the earliest, the, the first question is easier than the second of when should you start thinking about these things? I think the answer is pretty straightforward now, mm-hmm. right? Thinking about who are you going to ask to write that teaching observation, thinking about what is your diversity stuff. And maybe you don't think you do diversity research. Maybe actually do the exercise and like sit down and reflect because I'm certain there are certain things you're doing that would surprise you, but then you're also going to notice, but like, oh yeah, I'm totally lacking here. Yeah. And those weaknesses are never just weaknesses, but they're opportunities to grow. And that could be highlighted in the statement as well, right? It doesn't have to be the, I'm the perfect diversity person. I'm the perfect teacher. I'm the perfect researcher. That's not what these statements are. These statements are to get a sense of who you are as a person and can they see themselves working with you. Mm -hmm. And I think that act of humility, again, generally speaking, is judged more favorably than not. And there might be some institutions who are like, oh, they don't. They don't do this. We don't want, maybe that's not the institution that you would want to be at. Just, I mean, that sounds horrible, right? But if there's certain institutions who are going to judge you for being you, you probably don't want to be working there. Even yeah. though there's that, you know, there's almost that fun of like, I need to get a job, I need to get a job, and I'm never going to like schooling. We're like, why do you need to get a job? Don't just accept anything. Sometimes you get one job offer, and it's not the ideal job offer, and you're like, I'm still going to go there because it's a job offer. But yeah. You shouldn't give up on yourself, right? Like you should never I don't know why. I just I want people to know that they shouldn't settle like that they deserve better. And I think sometimes we get so used to just accepting any opportunity that when it, when we have the chance to be picky, we actually should be a little bit picky. You know, I, I'm not sure. No, I, I, think that's, I think that's a wonderful note to like in the episode on, right? Like you're working really hard to like get your degree and like you know, become a really good teacher and and, and researcher um, and, and hopefully advocate in, in your community. And so I, I think it's important to know like what you want and what your values are and like being able to spot those or like the absence of them in institutions and like making a decision to like do what's like really best for you and like what's aligned with like your, your I don't know, your values, like who you are as a person, you know, don't, don't settle for just a job to have a job. And I think by you doing that and you selectively choosing institutions, you're also, I think, raising your chances of success because you're increasing the fit. <laughs> like you're by default, like you don't want to show up to an interview and be like, so why did you apply here? And be like, well, it's a job. It was a posting, <laughs> right? Versus if you tell someone, well, I like your location a lot. The values you put on that website for diversity really stood out to me, right? Like, if you actually have a good reason for applying to a place and they ask, why did you apply? Cause like, that's what they really want to know. Like, yeah. is this just, are we your second choice or are we actually like a top contender? 
Yeah. Yeah. Then all you have to do is be honest. <laughs> Genuinely, it makes your life so much easier. At least yeah. that's why interviews, I think, went well for me. It's like, mm-hmm. so why do you care about teaching? Or no, why did you apply to this job? I will get, I'm sorry, I'm going to like next po- <laughs> of comment questions, but I'll, I'll spoil one now. It's why did you choose to apply to this job? It's probably one of the first questions asked at the Zoom interview phase and mm-hmm. in-person interview phase. And for all of it, I had the same answer because all jobs met this requirement. The first bullet point of their job description is we care about building um, and caring for our undergraduates and having good teaching for us. Yep. And so when they're like, well, why did you apply to an institution? They can look at my teaching statement. I'm telling them I love teaching and I can refer to their own job posting saying, well, I applied to it because I was under the assumption that, you know, if everything's, I, I, I flipped the script yeah. on them, right? Yeah. It's like, I care about teaching. You said you care about teaching. So I think it's a good fit. Mm-hmm. Can you confirm that you do care about teaching? Like, yeah, less aggressive than that. Like it wasn't like so <laughs> sassy, but like, that was my thing. And on all accounts are like, oh yeah, no, we love teaching. I'm like, then, hey, we're a perfect match, you yeah. know, made in heaven. Um, I think then maybe we can answer the second question and part two then of when to actually start, right? And we can actually start talking about timelines, interviews, negotiations, job acceptances, but also how to, I think you raised this point about how to decline a job as well, because you also don't want to be the aspect now, or like ghost them. You don't want to ghost anybody. Oh, so yeah, I, I know. think there's etiquettes with that that, because of resources exposed to me because of mentors I've had, both my official mentor and not mentors, where it's like, oh no, there's there's a better way to go about it than just saying, no, I'm sorry, or ghost. Yeah. So does that sound like a plan for part two? That sounds like a great plan. All right. That well then, Cassie, close us off. I always say hello, hello, hello. Do you want to end us off on a goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. <laughs> goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. All right then folks. I think that's it. We'll see you guys in the next one very, very soon. Hey again. We want to thank you once more for listening to Two Random Weirdos. If you want to listen to us ramble some more, we'll be posting episodes bi-weekly on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts at. If you want to get in touch with us, we can be found on Facebook, Twitter, or X, and Instagram with the handle at CorruptYouthPod. Or feel free to email us at CorruptingTheYouthPod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and helping us spread the corruption. Bye. Bye!